Water is lapping in the stage four tank, a 100 by 100 foot wet grotto, damp, humid, sounds echoing like when you're at a kid's indoor swim lesson. Dozens of extras in wool clothes, sodden, sodden wool, are crouching in the water because it's only four feet deep, this tank, but they are supposed to be drowning and thrashing and then freezing to death in the North Atlantic, which of course is something like 12,000 feet deep. This is the set of James Cameron's film Titanic, of course, and Jack Dawson is going to die pretty early in the production. This moment where, for the most of us, the tears flow at the end of the film. But just a few minutes into this first try of this scene where Jack and Rose cling to a bit of debris, the jagged sheet of floating oak they have doesn't seem right. It's not substantial enough. Cameron sends production designer Peter Lamont, a fairly staid British man, who has painstakingly designed and reproduced the year 1912 for him, off to manufacture a new oak piece, one modeled after a specific bit of debris Cameron had seen in a Halifax museum. Cameron then turns back to the masses, to the extras, instructing them on thrashing, reviews what the various stages of hypothermia would feel like, what it might look like in a character. And they shoot the scene where 5th Officer Harold Lowe rose back to look for survivors, a scene plucked from reality, because we know, without a doubt, Lowe was the only one who rode back into the bodies the night the Titanic sank. The bit of debris comes back from the on-site props department. Things come back quickly for James Cameron when he asks for them. And Kate Winslet wades back out into the water, calls out to Leonardo DiCaprio, Darling, come and join me on the debris. And he does. A reporter on set witnessed this. Kate gets on the debris, and let me be clear, it's a piece of oak paneling. It is not a door. She lays back on it, up at what would be the stars. And at some point, someone must bring her a cassette player and headphones, because this part is documented too, that she's laying there listening to Gregorian chants on a cassette player, while makeup and hair artists coat her hair with wax to make it look like ice so it sticks to the wood. And Leo floats patiently, holds on to her hand. What an astounding 90s moment, right? This is filmed in October, this part, before the replica Titanic is ready, before it fully takes shape on the coast of a Mexican resort town that had long seen better days. Jack Dawson dies before he does most everything else in the film. There were five more grueling months to come on a shoot that would, by all accounts, wear down its actors, director, its extras, its crew to the absolute bone of the bone. Cameron called it, quote, the most gut-wrenching lows and the giddiest highs. This process of telling the tale of a ship that, he so eloquently said, quote, drowned on her honeymoon. Are you ready to go back to Titanic? Are you ready to go back to 1997? Actually, actually, it's 1996. So cue some Enya. I'm pouring some wine. I'm L.A. Beatles, and welcome back to Unsinkable, the Titanic podcast. This is back to 1997 on a beach in Rosarito, the making of James Cameron's Titanic, part one.
James Cameron steps off the Russian research ship the Keldish in September 1995 after diving the wreck of Titanic and shooting footage funded by 20th Century Fox that would bookend a film he'd been formulating for years. And if you haven't listened to my episode about James Cameron from one week prior, I recommend giving it a listen. Cameron walks off that ship and into an intense pre-production process. Fox head of film Peter Chernin had not even greenlit the film yet. Not officially. Even though he'd given Cameron money to go down to the ocean floor, but he was impressed with the footage and he told Cameron to officially develop a budget. So in late 1995 and early 1996, Cameron is spending his days like this. During the daytime, he's meeting with casting people, set design people, costume designers. And at night, (laughs) and this shouldn't surprise you if you listen to the episode I did about Cameron or if you know anything about him. At night, he works on a script for a completely different movie, a comet disaster movie called Bright Angel Falling that he's never made, but... I wish he would. In a new foreword to the Titanic companion book released in 2012 when they released the movie in 3D, this is the big kind of glossy coffee table book you always see, Cameron quite bluntly calls climate change an iceberg out in the distance. And one wonders if his Comet movie addresses that. It seems, though, of course, that Avatar would and is, (laughs) would become and is uh, his environmental movie that he puts his energies into. So also in late 95, early 96, he spends time with a 25-foot model of Titanic at Digital Domain, which is his effects house, his special effects company. So the model is set up on a stage with sheets of plastic tarp subbing in for water, and he visualizes all the shots with the same lipstick camera strategy he used on the Keldish. Basically, he, you know, takes a tiny little lipstick-sized cam and you know, plans out exactly where the camera is going to be in conjunction to parts of the ship. He used to do this on the deck of the Keldish when he would imagine where the sub would go, where the ROV would go. And so every shot in Titanic is planned. These are not accidents. He's visualizing them even before he ever sets foot on a st- on the studio uh, set. Cameron knew every shot he'd get of the ship. And just to note, By the end of the shoot, they'd build seven models of Titanic, from a 60-foot section to detailed scale models of the whole ship, from 120th scale to 18th scale. The largest complete recreation of Titanic they made was 45 feet long and cost just this thing, just this one model cost a half a million dollars to make. And even before an official green light, like I said, as he employs craftspeople from all around the world to begin visualizing and recreating all of the objects of the world of 1912, this process was in motion of epic movie making. We cannot deny that. No one probably tried to deny that even at the time. Cameron had to have known on some level as he saw the budget roll up and roll up, and as he envisioned the scenes he'd shoot on grand scales, as he envisioned resinking the Titanic, that his movie was of a certain film history lineage, and one he knew very well. He's a film guy. Hollywood epics go all the way back to the 1910s, many of them biblical, of course. And I wish I could go into a full laundry list (laughs) sort of history, but that's another podcast altogether. And 
that's not even another episode. That's just a completely different podcast. So, and I'm sure that I'm sure it's out there. But what you should know is that Cameron is born in 1954, right? So he doesn't necessarily grow up on the biblical epics of the teens or 20s, or even of Gone with the Wind, which I hear mentioned a lot alongside Titanic. But instead, he grows up on these huge studio productions of the late 1950s and 60s, Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia, Cleopatra, Ben-Hur. I think I remember reading that he was very much moved by and inspired by Dr. Zhivago, which was released in 1965. And this makes total sense to me. I actually watched Dr. Zhivago for the first time when I was, I think, 22. It was late one night. I was home at my dad's for a holiday, I think for Christmas, I was home from grad school and I was sick and I had a fever. And I remember thinking, this is like Titanic. This is such a long movie, (laughs) but I'm lost in it in the best way possible. And actually, and, and Cameron never could have foreseen this, of course, but there are quite a few parallels between Titanic and Zhivago. They're both romantic drama epics. They're both shot over more than half a year both with sets built from scratch. In Zhivago's case, the entire Moscow set was built outside of Madrid. And if you've never seen it, I I highly recommend. It's a classic. And I'm sorry, guys, if I sound a little scratchy. I think, as I've mentioned before, I live in Texas and our allergens, like our pollen, our cedar pollen is through the roof and out of control. And what you should know about me is that... <laughs> I'm I'm actually allergic pretty much to every bit of the environment of where I live. I once did a set of allergy tests and they brought in the doctor because they were worried I was going to go into anaphylactic shock from the testing. So anyway, my whole environment makes me sneeze 18 times an hour. I apologize if I sound a little bit scratchy. That was way too much information. Anyway, here we go. So there are all these similarities to Dr. Shivago that I was thinking about. It's just an interesting little, you know, side bit. And there are also quite a few similarities with Ben-Hur, another huge epic that I hear mentioned alongside Titanic as well, often. This was shot in 1958 with 12 to 14 hour days, six days a week, at a pace so grueling that purportedly a doctor was brought in on set to give everyone vitamin B complex injections. I didn't even know that those existed back then. I learned something there. And these had been successful epics. There were also Hollywood cautionary tales like Heaven's Gate, a 1980 Western notorious because its director, Michael Cimino, took so many takes and shot so much film that people started to call him the Ayatollah. This is horrible. The film cost $44 million and made $3.5 million. Now, This is getting a little ahead of myself, but I actually heard Danny Nucci, and he's the actor who plays Fabrizio in Titanic, I heard him say in an interview from just a few years ago that when they were filming Titanic on the set, people around him would actually kind of whisper and talk about, hey, is this another Heaven's Gate? So does Cameron think of himself walking into this pedigree, this line of historical epics when he plans Titanic? I have no idea. I imagine it had to sort of be in the air, though. The best reviews of Titanic would call it, as professor of film studies Peter Kramer has pointed out, quote, a return to a long neglected tradition in Hollywood filmmaking, 
which combined hugely expensive and awe-inspiring cinematic spectacle with character-centered storytelling, grand emotions, human values, and mythic resonances, and aimed at an all-encompassing mass audience rather than the more restricted target audience of most of today's blockbusters. I love that quote. I think the key here is mass audience and universality. Universality is largely gone now from cinemas and from the experience of going to the mu- to the movies at all. At least in the United States, it does seem to be. I can't speak to how it is in other countries. And some people will argue that that universality or that monocultural moment is still happening with Marvel, but I don't see it. As a non-Marvel person, I don't see it. And I even know some people who are Marvel people that don't see it either. I just don't see the emotion and the universality. And I've watched some of them. So, you know, there you go. But let's get back to that moment, arguably, that last gasp of all of this, of epic filmmaking in this kind of traditional way. We couldn't have known it at the time, but Titanic becomes pretty much the last one of that lineage, because now it's all green screen. This was a very crucial moment in the late 90s. The practical effects were still the order of the day, but CG was kind of peeking in. And James Cameron's work on Titanic would be really crucial in the sort of revolutionary process of, you know, CG in the late 90s and early 2000s. He really set in motion a lot of processes that give us the action movies, the sci-fi movies that we have today. And this is a really key year, you know, 96, 97, a key time because the internet is in our lives, but it's not running our lives. And the cell phones and kind of at-home technologies are in our lives, but they're not running our lives. And there is still this kind of monocultural process of going to the movies and that being a big part of, you know, your social life, your cultural life. One thing we know for sure is that Cameron felt a responsibility to the weight of the Titanic story itself, largely because of the solemnity he'd felt within himself when he witnessed the haunting darkness of that wreck. In terms of his script, he has said, quote, Where the facts are clear, we have been absolutely rigorous in restaging events. Where they are unclear, I have made my own choices, a few of which may be controversial to students of Titanic history. Though I may not always have made a traditional interpretation, I can assure the reader and viewer that that these are conscious and well-informed decisions and not casual Hollywood mistakes. Now, one critic that I read, and (laughs) I love I don't like to mention names when I have issues with articles because I don't want to drag anybody. You know, what's the point of that? But I did read one critic that really, speaking of drag, really drug him over the coals for this quote. But I actually think it's a really important quote and a really important distinction because a lot of historical films do include very casual mistakes. And one great example is the 96 miniseries Titanic that was on CBS. And I did a Titanic on film episode about that. And whoa, there's a lot of big mistakes in that, but also a lot of what I would call casual mistakes, you know, things like the way the dining room looks completely wrong or how they have characters, you know, saddled up to the bar to order drinks and there was no bar on Titanic. So 
I think it's it's a crucial distinction to make there that Cameron heads into this process vowing that there would be no casual mistakes. He might accidentally make some mistakes thematically or in some people's opinion in terms of the historical record, but there would be no casual mistakes. So before we head into a play-by-play of how Cameron brought this ship to life, let's establish something. I think it's important. So there's, and I've talked about this on the podcast a lot before, and I think you, if you've listened to the pod before, you know this is my stance. There is no clear-cut record of Titanic's minute by minute. There could never be a true text for a film because there's no true text. The Senate hearings and the hearings in the UK are the closest that we have to that, but there, no one has ever claimed that those are a full or true text. So just as with most historical events prior to the internet and social media, etc., there's no way to know a true minute by minute anyway. And even now, even in an era where we have literally footage of everything that happens, what is the true fact of a narrative even now? Everyone has a different perspective and will interpret an action or an image differently as an event's going on, or as they're watching an event unfolding, or as they're thinking about it. So there is no perfect. There is no perfect in a historical film. There is what Cameron has called, quote, printing the legend, showing some of the mythology of an event, like the band playing on until the very end for Titanic and this movie. And he does a fair amount of that as well. So to do this, to build Titanic again, To make 1996 into 1912, James Cameron assembles a top-notch team. He has, as I mentioned before, British production designer Peter Lamont, who worked on Aliens and True Lies with him. He has a physical effects supervisor named Tommy Fisher, who worked with him, has had worked with him since T2. He has John Landau, producer who would be his right-hand man through every minute of it. And Landau had basically come over to work pretty exclusively for Cameron and on this film after spending five years as executive VP of features at 20th Century Fox. Cameron has Ray Sancini, executive producer and Lightstorm president, and Lightstorm is Cameron's production company. She is his right-hand woman. She is a financial genius. I think she had saved a deal with Fox uh, when it had major structural issues. She sounds like a real badass. And so I think what, you know, Landau gets mentioned a lot as Cameron's right-hand man on these sets, but Sancini, I think, is just as important. And she plays a crucial role in the development of Titanic. Then there's visual effects artist Rob Legato, who worked on Interview with the Vampire, Apollo 13. He's got a great pedigree. There is costume designer Deborah Scott, and these are just a few. There's obviously many, many, many more people. Cameron wanted to invite the audience on board the sinking ship, basically, with shots that are kind of those you are there shots. He wanted the ship, not a stand in for the ship. And it would take this team, of which, of course, you know, each team member, team member is then leading dozens and hundreds of other people on their own individual teams to do what it had taken White Star Line years to do. Make the small town that was Titanic, this floating small town. So if you've listened to my Titanic on film episodes, then you probably have a pretty good idea of how filmmakers had 
shot Titanic and tried to create the ship with visual effects prior to this film. There is Raise the Titanic in 1980, where there's a they use models uh, as well. And for 1980, there's actually a few shots where the models are used fairly well. And I, in that episode on that film, I spoke about how weirdly moving and effective the shot of the wreck of Titanic coming out of the water is. So there's some definitely some model shots on that film where they almost got it. But then, of course, the the actual ship that they used as a stand in for Titanic when they're shooting scenes with people on the ship looks, you know, nothing like it. So there's problems there. There's the 1953 Hollywood Titanic where... I don't think they were even necessarily trying for accuracy. The sets just look like typical 1950s studio sets. There's a few scenes that look so anachronistic because it just looks like a a salon from 1950, not anything from 1912. Then, of course, there is A Night to Remember, which is considered obviously a quintessential Titanic film and is considered very accurate in many ways by a lot of Titanic writers and researchers. And they did some tank work. Uh, I remember when I researched the episode I did on that one, I think one of the actors recalled, you know, how scary it was to jump into the cold water on the tank. So, there was there's definitely some, you know, groundbreaking stuff done for 1958 then, but A Night to Remember also does use clips of the ship from a 1940s Nazi propaganda movie about Titanic. So there's definitely some issues there. Uh, Cameron says that A Night to Remember, though, to note, did a, quote, pretty good job with the dining saloon. They created only a portion of it, but the portion that they did create, Cameron said, was up to snuff. So originally, Cameron and Landau, and, you know, they're they're thinking about the budget. They're planning all this out in early 1996. Originally, they thought they could get away with maybe just building parts of the ship to scale, or they thought about redressing a large container ship or a barge to look like Titanic. They knew that natural light and how it played through the set would be a main point of interest, would be really important. And so this informed every location they investigated, every, you know, strategy that they thought of. And this is really crucial. You know that line in the movie when Rose is about to start telling her story and she says, it's been 84 years, but I can still smell the fresh paint. Wait a minute. We need to hear it. Hold on. (laughs) It's been 84 years and I can still smell the fresh paint. The china had never been used. The sheets had never been slept in. This is so important to remember, and I think it's something that a lot of people forget, which is that Titanic was brand new. We think about older places, older times, older things. We think about antiques, and we think about the ways that objects are aged. Say 1912, say you walk into an antique store and you see an item from 1912, it's going to look old. But (laughs) things were brand new on this ship. Everything smelled of fresh paint. They actually had to bring in truckloads of fresh flowers and they scattered them all throughout the ship to try to cover up the smell of fresh paint as they were leaving Southampton. That's a true story. So (sighs) they needed to... For this movie, they needed to build a ship that was new, and they needed to fill it with 
new things. Now here's one <laughs> one problematic angle on this whole picking a location and, and choosing how they would design the set sort of thing. So Cameron was really willing to go anywhere in the world for cheap labor. And this is problematic, right? Because they're leaving LA, they're leaving California to shoot it somewhere else so that they can pay workers. And there would be a lot of construction workers, for example, that work on this at less money. And so that is problematic. They scouted Australia, Czechoslovakia, Sweden, Poland. They scouted all over the world. Uh, Peter Lamont already had art departments working in London, LA, Mexico City. Cameron looked at the Baltic at one point, thought about going 10 miles offshore to shoot, but then realized in a situation like that, the transportation time of getting the actors and the crew out and then back would cut into shooting time. And then there would be the question of daylight and weather. They realized that they needed to be stationary to shoot this. And also that the sinking scenes all needed to match, even though they would inevitably be shot over days and weeks and months. They needed a clear, still night because that's the type of night that Titanic sunk on. So what if all the sets were outside <laughs> in the Baltic and then the weather was unpredictable and stormy? It just wouldn't work. So they they considered everything from blimp hangers, you know, like a place that a blimp would be stored, to rock quarries, to a submarine plant in South Carolina. But I doubt Cameron ever really heavily considered that option because he'd had a terrible time shooting the abyss in South Carolina. So then a crucial realization, though, they saw the work on computer-generated water that Digital Domain was producing and realized they could shoot near the water and combine digital effects with practical effects and use the natural horizon. Basically, create the sense of motion when you're looking down. They could fake all that and... This made sense. They could build tanks for sinking scenes, have land-based sets, have them all together so they're close by. That's easier on the crew. It's easier to get the actors everywhere you need to go, easier in terms of monitoring the environment. So they decided to go this route. But for the actual exterior ship, they would need to stay outside, they realized. It was too hard to combine digitally pieces of a ship. And so this is the moment where they decide they need to build Titanic on an exterior set as part of all of this. So basically, they realize they essentially need their own studio. So they settle on Rosarito, a, quote, resort town that had seen better days, had been popular with Southern California students in the 1970s, but since then hadn't really, I don't think, been known for much. And they obviously picked this location because of cheap real estate and cheap labor. So that is problematic. Just wanted to put that all out there. So the budget was difficult. No one knew what all this would cost. And budget line items for films are often guesses anyway. Scenes you know, they're based on scenes from a script and you're estimating all of this. And for Titanic, if you think about James Cameron's script, say like the moment that Jack and Rose watch walk on the boat deck the night after they meet, the script might say, might have just said, Jack and Rose walk on deck. And that sounds pretty basic and simple. But in order to shoot that scene, 
then you would have had to have built the deck or at least part of the deck of Titanic. You know, the the script is deceptive. So they came up with uh, $125 million as a budget as of April of 1996. This would, just to note, exclude the cost of building the new studio. That's a different cost. Uh, Peter Chernin asked Cameron to reconsider some things, and they they cut a few scenes. They get it below 110 <laughs> Which is just laughable. Think about that they thought they were gonna they were gonna manage that at that point. So the Fox executives, which is Peter Chernin, Bill Mechanic, who we'll we'll talk about here in a little bit too, and production president Tom Rothman, and even Rupert Murdoch up at the top, worried about the budget quite a bit. And in some of the meetings, apparently they were also worried about the upcoming CBS miniseries in '96. They had obviously nothing to worry about. And if you are, you know, up for a good laugh, I would watch it um, or just listen to my episode about it and you'll get all the, you know, get all the the highlights of how terrible it is. Fox wanted desperately to target for a July 4th, 97 release date. This was the same weekend that Terminator 2 had opened in 1991, which believe it or not, had been made from script to screen in 13 months. That one had. So they believed this kind of thing was possible. And executives pushed Cameron to commit to a six-day work week to cut the budget. He actually, for the record, wanted to do a five-day work week. So they have a greenlit film. And what do you have to do with a film? At that point, you have to cast it. So here's some fun stuff. And I have to say, doing this episode feels like some sort of like fan fiction process of getting to live out a fantasy of mine since I was 13, which is to just sit down and talk about the making of this movie and have people listen. (laughs) So this is a dream come true. Thank you for listening. A woman named Molly Flynn is the casting director and she's worked for Cameron before. She had cast T2, talked about her then. She has on her walls just pictures of actual Titanic passengers plastered. And she's looking at these all day. She's casting this film. She is the one who brings Kate Winslet and Leonardo DiCaprio to the forefront of the proverbial pile. She zones in on them and pushes for them uh, in terms of, you know, who to take to Cameron. Cameron's a little hesitant. He is a little hesitant on Kate Winslet because she had acquired a sort of reputation in Hollywood at that point of being, quote, corset Kate. She had done, obviously, Sense and Sensibility a couple of years prior. She had gotten an Oscar nomination. It's an amazing Ang Lee film, too. I mean, even if you're not, by the way, total side note, but even if you're not a Jane Austen person, that film is by far the best Jane Austen you know, an adaptation that's ever been made, but it's also just a fantastic film and definitely go back and watch it if you have a chance. She had also done Kenneth Branagh's Hamlet. She'd done Ophelia. She had also done a very dark (laughs) interpretation of uh, Jude the Obscure, which I guess it's a very dark book, so it has to be a dark one. I mean, even the Disney movie that she'd done at that point, which is a kid in King Arthur's court, she was in, you know, she was in King Arthur's Court, so she was in a corset. Uh, so this is sort of a little bit of a, you know, sense that kind of circles around her that she, you know, only does period films. And Cameron just didn't want to play into that, but he realized pretty quickly that that was, you know, kind of a silly way to to be conceptualizing this. So really quick before we get into her casting process, though, some of the other women considered, and Cameron admits that he had kind of written himself into a corner by making Rose so young, but he was very insistent that 
this be a story of first love, a very youthful love. And so he wasn't going to, you know, he wasn't going to compromise on that. She had to look young. That cut out a lot of, you know, contenders. Uh, some other people that were considered Gwyneth Paltrow, Claire Danes. Interestingly, I um, I heard a podcast interview with her a couple of years ago in which she, and she would have been very young at the time of casting for this, I think only like 17 years old. But she said basically that she was heavily considered for the film, but while they were casting Titanic, she was actually already in Mexico filming Romeo and Juliet with Leonardo DiCaprio, and that that was a big part of her decision to not really go further in the casting process, that it would have meant that she stayed in Mexico working with Leonardo DiCaprio for another, you know, oh gosh, she didn't even know, but it would have been seven or eight months. And she said that it just, you know, to to replicate the same experience and to stay there and not get a break from, you know, filming and and that sort of thing. So I, I think that informed her decision. I get the sense that she made it pretty far in the process, but I don't know exactly how far. And those, I guess those are probably the two big names that I've I've heard um, you know, you hear a podcast episode about the making of this and people do like quick internet research and they see other names come up, but I don't, I don't know that there were a lot of other well-known actresses that truly, truly made it super far in this casting process. I think Kate Winslet was at the top uh, pretty early on. So as Cameron said, Rose would be a conduit for our emotions. She's of 1912, but enough of the modern day that audiences can see this whole world through her eyes can relate to her. And those are big shoes to fill. But Kate Winslet comes in and wows Cameron. She comes in for her first audition on a Culver City soundstage. She is dressed by costumer Deborah Scott, who'd been scouring for vintage dresses and brainstorming and designing since November of 1995. And the scene is lit by... Russell Carpenter, who would go on to light the movie, but we'll talk about that more. She does this full screen test with Cameron behind the camera, and she does the audition in both accents, in her British accent, which is, you know, obviously she is from Britain, and in an American accent. And Cameron said that she was breathtaking and that he couldn't find a bad angle on her face, and he was quite taken by her. And actually, just real quick, you may know this if you know anything about the making of the movie, but there is one of her screen tests that you can see online. And she is running through the screen test with, of all people, Jeremy Sistow from Clueless, who apparently was, I mean, obviously brought in for an addition and considered on some level. And I have to believe that if he was brought in for a fully costumed screen test like this. He must have been kind of far in the process. So that's quite an alternate reality, right? Where Jeremy Sistow is Jack Dawson. It's weird. But back to Kate. So there's a really important sort of talk about myths. There's a really important kind of you know, myth, narrative, whatever you want to call it about Kate Winslet in this part that I would like to bust open and it makes me mad. So there is this tale of her begging for the part from James Cameron. You hear this story circulating that she sent him, you know, a hundred or a thousand roses or some point at some point and said, I am your rose, hire me, hire me. And it makes me really uncomfortable that that is the narrative that came out of the the casting of the female lead of this movie, that is actually based on no factual account that I could find at all. And I dug through all of the interviews. And here's what actually happened, guys. 
prior to auditioning, she read the script. She had she had gotten a hold of the script through her agent. She read it. She loved it. She was moved to tears by it. She had her agent call so she could get in, in on a phone call directly to James Cameron. That's not weird. That's totally normal. She had already been nominated for an Oscar at this point. She's getting hired by directors like Kenneth Branagh already. She already has a fair amount of, you know, kind of power in Hollywood as an up-and-coming actress. So this is not strange. I'm sure male actors do this all the time and nobody would ever question them. So she calls Cameron. There's nothing wrong with that. And then also after she's given the part, she herself, Winslet herself, admits to on the way to the airport after she's given the part, she sends Cameron a single red rose and says, thank you from your rose, which I think is a perfect, simple, elegant gesture. And somewhere along the way, this has gotten blown up into this story of Kate Winslet begging for this part, which is utterly ridiculous, particularly when you read Cameron's own words about casting. And he says things like, quote, Kate is absolutely luminous. And quote, I couldn't resist her. So Cameron gets her on on the soundstage for the audition. And he knows. He sees her and he knows this is his rose. There's no question about that. And he falls in love with the idea of her as his rose. So any other narrative of her having to beg for this role is hogwash and never let anyone tell you that that's the truth. It's not. And on the flip side of that is, of course, (laughs) for the, the casting of the male lead, right? It has become this narrative of Cameron had to beg Leo to come to the movie. Now, this one does seem to have a little bit of a basis in reality, at least, but it's definitely a narrative that's taken on such a life of its own. There is this story, and it seems pretty factual because I I read it mentioned by the several people that would have been in the room when it happened, that Leo comes in for an early meeting into the offices of Lightstorm, which is Cameron's production company. And James Cameron's not a... I don't think he's a starstruck kind of person. And I also don't think from what I gather, uh, just reading so much about him that he's much of a quote Hollywood person. I don't think he's lunching and bar hopping with Hollywood people. I don't think he's ever been super into like who the hot new actors are or anything like that. I just don't. So I don't think he really knew the level at which Leonardo DiCaprio already had a following, particularly a female following. So he sets up this meeting at Lightstorm and he arrives for the meeting, walks into the room and realizes quickly that every single female staffer at Lightstorm has decided to show up for this meeting. (laughs) I just love that. I love that story. He meets with Leo. He claims that Leo refused to read on camera and said he didn't read for parts anymore. Who knows how this actually played out? I am not even going to venture a guess. But essentially, eventually, Leo decides, yes, I want to go for this part and I will read on camera. No one can physically force you to be part of a screen test. So obviously he decides at some point, I do want to do this. And it and and at some point Cameron's flying Kate over to do these screen tests. So they do read together and they do this walk and talk scene uh, from the movie on the boat deck. At the time in the script, it was very different and they would work on the scene a lot. But they do this walk and talk scene and Cameron realizes 
pretty quickly that Leo is Jack Dawson. Quote, I met him and basically just loved him. He could quickly charm a group of people without doing anything obvious. And the second I met him, I was convinced. End quote. Also, Cameron has said, quote, the hardest thing about this movie is to tell this love story where two people meet, fall in love, and decide they can only be with each other in 96 hours before the ship hits the iceberg. Cameron really believed in the love story between these two people. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when I do kind of the cultural history of the film in a few weeks. But I think this makes a lot of people uncomfortable in our very cynical modern society. It's (laughs) the earnestness of the love story between Jack and Rose really, it does make people uncomfortable. And I think it's one of the reasons why the film has sort of a, um, you know, an aura of a negative reputation now. But we'll talk about all that. We'll talk about all that when it comes. A few weeks. I'll hold all that in. It's a whole conversation. All this to say that casting was crucial. The chemistry had to be there and the right Jack Dawson had to be there. So Cameron zones in pretty quickly on this chemistry between Kate and Leo. And there's this great story Again, one that I did, I could back up (laughs) with facts, it seems, where Kate says to Cameron after she does the read through with Leo, if you don't hire me, hire him. He's perfect. But Cameron takes her aside that same day and says, you know, you have the part. I don't know anything else, but you have the part. And then that's when she sends the single red rose. So Cameron has said in interviews since that he was pretty pissed off that Leo took so long to commit to the role. And it does seem like it took him a while to commit. He knew that the audience had to be, quote, as mesmerized by this guy as Rose is. And so I had to find a guy who had the ability to just suck you in. And Leo can do that. And although he looked at other people, notably Matthew McConaughey, who apparently was considered quite heavily and that the studio liked the idea of he looks so he does he looks at other people at one point Tom Cruise's agent calls about the part and Cameron tells him I'm flattered but this part is is too young you would be too old to play this part so he does consider other people and I think this is a multi-week multi-month process where Leo is considering this part and Also, side note, McConaughey is considered for, um, I think he may even been offered the role of Cal, which I definitely could see. I could definitely see like a very productive alternate universe where you've got a McConaughey gal. It's a different movie. And I love Billy Zane. Adore him. But I could see that. I just, I couldn't see Matthew McConaughey as Jack Dawson. Not at all. I, uh, there's too much of like a smirking wink in his eye kind of thing that McConaughey is going on, has going on. And it just, I don't know. There's an interesting question. Let me know your thoughts. I just, I can't, I can't imagine it. So Cameron knows that Leo would play Jack, like you believe in this honest and earnest nature that he had, that this is a guy who would sit and sketch nude women in Paris and not necessarily have sex with them. I mean, that's think about that scene, you know, when Jack and Rose are on the boat deck and she's looking at his paintings. That innocent smile, that, that you know, look through you and can see you, 
kind of guy. And we have to believe that he's got these sketches of these nude women that he essentially befriended instead of sleeping with or taking advantage of. And that's just one example. But, you know, Jack Dawson is um, a very specific type of person. And Cameron had a very specific vision for who he was. So (sighs) apparently Kate Winslet corners Leo at the Cannes Film Festival that year. She finds out that he's kind of hemming and hawing. So she's working on him to try to get him to do it. And Cameron is basically the whole time telling Leo, hey, you've played these characters, you know, like in Gilbert Grape, in (laughs) the Basketball Diaries, Total Eclipse, a lot of tortured characters. You've, You've played characters that either have some sort of disability, like in Gilbert Grape, or a kind of tortured soul. This character doesn't have a tortured soul. This is a a completely open and honest person who is truly looking for the best in everybody and and in his life. And he makes the argument to Leo, hey, this character is harder to play, that if you have some sort of disability or accent or, you know, um, tragedy to use as a crutch in a character, that that's easier, that it's harder to play a character that is so um, simple, for lack of a better word, but also, you know, can move you through that sort of simple elegance. And so I think the narrative here is that that's what eventually convinced Leo to do it, that it would be a challenge to play a character like that. Who knows? We (laughs) will never know. We weren't a fly on the wall of those rooms would love to have been, but we weren't. So I don't know. I think it's dangerous to create a narrative where you know, the male lead had to be convinced and then was paid more money, which he was. Leo was paid $2.5 million for this movie, and Kate Winslet was paid not even a million dollars. So this narrative of the female lead had to beg for it, and then we paid her less, and then the male lead we had to beg and then we paid him more. Do you see how that's a little bit dangerous? So I just wanted to kind of slice through that narrative. It's not true. There's a lot of holes you can poke in it. And I think the main problem coming out of that is the pay discrepancy, which I think at the time was unfortunately just how they did things. Male actors just made a lot more. And he was a bit more known at the time, but she was... She'd been nominated for an Oscar. She wasn't an unknown actress. So to me, that's weird. I don't like that. All right, some other interesting casting uh, points. So Kathy Bates, who arguably is, you know, the third most sort of known person in this film, she got half a million dollars, which Cameron actually had to pay part of in order to convince the studio to bring her on. Most of the rest of the cast... Uh, save for a few, and I'm sure the, the other few that didn't do this, you know, include people like Billy Zane, but most of the rest of the cast worked for scale plus 10, which essentially means, which essentially at this time meant $2,000 a week. I mean, you have to think about it. That's, you know, still pretty good money, especially considering this was 96. So I ran it through the inflation calculator and that would actually be $3,500 a week now, which is not, I mean, that's a lot of money. So Cameron <laughs> Cameron is assembling a cast mostly of people that are, you know, largely unknown and will work for this scale with a few exceptions. So there's, you know, Billy Zane, which the tale goes that when he was shooting the present day scenes in Nova Scotia, he still hadn't cast Cal. And he goes to the theater and he sees The Phantom, which is a, a film that Billy Zane was in. And I'm sure many a film podcast has done an episode on The Phantom and its <laughs> cultural, I don't know, I don't know, implications. Um, 
it's an interesting uh, movie. So that's the tale on Zane. Who knows? Uh, also, there's Bill Paxton, who he cast as Brock Levitt for the present day scenes. He's basically casting himself. We'll talk about that in a minute. Bill Paxton and him went way back to the days where Cameron worked in Roger Corman's studios. So they've been friends for decades at this point. And Paxton has been in, you know, a ton of Cameron's movies. I talked about it last week, but his, you know, comic turn in True Lies is fantastic. And Cameron and Paxton were very, very, very dear friends and remained so until Paxton died a few years back. Paxton is set as Brock Lovett. For old Rose, Cameron finds the actress Gloria Stewart, who hadn't acted in a while, but she, um, and by the way, she was born in Santa Monica, so it's kind of fitting, but she signed on as an actress with the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, MGM, in 1925. And she also worked for Universal in the 30s. And so she had been, I talk about old Hollywood glamour. She made so many movies. This was back in an era where Hollywood studios were just churning these things out, you know. And so she was in the Shirley Temple musicals. She was in horror films. She's in a Busby Busby Berkeley movie. So just, you should Google the pictures of her when she's younger. She's glammed up in these glossy silk long gowns and her hair is curled and she's got that, you know, quintessential 30s and 40s lipstick and makeup and she's just gorgeous. So Cameron finds her. And for the role of Old Rose, he's actually inspired by a real life person named Beatrice Wood. So he wanted to find someone that was over 100 years old, that really was still with it completely, that was still an artist, was still creative, was still able to communicate and uh, live very vibrantly at that age. And he found it in this woman named Beatrice Wood. And so he asked her permission to sort of use her as a model for old Rose. And so when you see these scenes, you know, in the present day, part of the film where she's in her home in California. I think in Ojai is where it's set. And she's at the pottery wheel and her house is filled with all of these great sort of artifacts and mementos from travels and from her art. It's That's inspired by this woman named Beatrice Wood, who was still living at the time. Gloria <laughs> asks to meet at the time she's cast. She asks to meet Kate Winslet because, you know, if you think about it, she's playing her. Kate Winslet's not playing Gloria Stewart, but Gloria Stewart is paying, is playing Kate Winslet. And so she wanted to meet her, learn her mannerisms and talk with her and that sort of thing. And I guess as part of what they envisioned as kind of a PR piece, they actually filmed this meetup between Kate Winslet and Gloria Stewart, this meetup of the roses. And it's an incredible moment. It's on the DVD behind the scenes featurettes. But I'm just going to play you a little clip right now because it's it's one of my favorite gems of all of these behind the scenes moments of, of the making of Titanic. Here it is. Her body gestures, her voice level, because I'm playing her. She's not playing me. So we killed a bottle of champagne and we talked and we talked. And it was a lovely afternoon. Let's celebrate. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. I thought it was remarkable. I mean, she is a remarkable woman. She's extraordinary. And the stories she has you know, about partying with the Marx Brothers. and I mean, she's just absolutely incredible. I know it's hard for you to believe that, but it really and truly is not my hair. Uh, the uh, breast is mine, the stomach is mine, the hips are mine. 
good. I have a seal on yours. <laughs> I loved the time that I spent with her. Isn't that incredible? I just love that moment where Kate Winslet's like, good. I they hope it's still all yours. And I love that Gloria Stewart, who's, you know, and not she's not 101, by the way. I should have mentioned that. She was actually in her 80s at this point, And they had to do age makeup on her to make her look even older. But she is in her 80s. And she's saying, like, oh, we killed a bottle of champagne. I love that. I hope I'm that way when I'm that age, 100%. So really had to play that. Uh, also, for the present day scenes, Cameron brings in his good friend, Louis Abernathy, who we talked about in the James Cameron episode. He, Cameron wrote <laughs> this character of, you know, the Brock Lovett sort of, you know, wacky sidekick guy who's very brash and wears the t-shirt with the smiley face with the bullet hole in it. He had written the character you know, based on Louis Abernathy. And so when he couldn't find someone to cast, he essentially said, Louis, why don't you just be in it? And Louis famously said, okay, if you want me to ruin your movie. And he auditioned in a driveway. <laughs> auditioned. I mean, he had the role. So he comes in. Uh, a couple of casting random side notes that I find are uh, entertaining. Don Lynch, obviously a well-known Titanic historian who worked on the film as a consultant for James Cameron. He is actually in the movie. He is on the deck when Jack grabs the coat as he's going to sneak into first class. And that scene is actually a recreation of a very famous photograph, one of the only photographs we have of Titanic, really, uh, a photo taken by Father Brown, who was on the ship just between Southampton and Ireland. He gets off in Ireland. He takes these photos of Titanic. They become world famous, world renowned. You've probably seen some of them. And they are some of the only real physical evidence we have of what it looked like while that ship was out on the water. And there's a photo of Robert Douglas Spedden, who was the child who survived the Titanic and then went on, unfortunately, to die a few years later. He's the one whose mother wrote the Polar the Titanic Bear book. He's on the deck with a spinning top, and Don Lynch plays one of the men that's on the deck with him in that photo. So there's this famous photo of Spedden, who I think, like I said, was six at the time, playing a spinning top, and there's two men with him on deck. So Cameron has his fictional character of Jack enter into this scene, into this photograph to grab that jacket. And I could be wrong, but I believe in the photograph taken by Father Brown, I believe his name is Francis Brown, there is a jacket on the on the chair in the frame. I could be wrong. I believe so. If I'm wrong, please forgive me. But I think that would be a really cool element of it if it is true. Cameron also brings on Jeanette Goldstein, who was a friend of his, had been in T2, had been in Aliens, and she plays the Irish mother. Bernard Fox, who plays Colonel Gracie, <laughs> one of my favorite characters in the film just because it's so charactered. Uh, but he had actually played Frederick Fleet the Lookout in A Night to Remember. While he was on set, he talked, he would talk to the actor who was playing Fleet in this movie, in the 97 movie. They <laughs> kind of shared how funny it was that, you know, back in 1957, Bernard Fox only had to be on the set for a couple days to film his lookout part. But because of the way the set is in Rosarito, and we're about to talk about that, the guy who plays Frederick Fleet in the 97 movie is there for like weeks and months waiting to film these parts. 
those are some interesting casting points. Obviously, this movie is populated with lots of actors that even if they don't have a lot of lines, we see them again and again. People like Tommy, uh, people like some of the um, you know main uh, third class extras that you see, the members of the of the Irish band, uh, the woman that Fabrizio is interested in, the Swedish woman. A lot of her scenes are actually cut, but she's you know before the final edit of the movie, she's in it a lot more. So there's it's a huge cast. Of first class and third class characters. And an interesting thing is that they did have this core group of 150 people that they called the core extras. And these are the people that stayed on set for the entire seven month shoot. And you see their faces a lot in the movie, and that's no accident. It is because Cameron wanted you to feel like, even if it's in the background and even if it's subconsciously, you're getting a sense of who is on that ship. You're seeing the same faces over and over again. And so when you see them in these drowning sequences or getting into lifeboats, you you kind of feel like, oh, there's the guy that was in the corner of the dining room or whatever dining saloon to get a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> or, you know, oh, that's the woman that was, you know, in the corner of the scene with Captain Smith, whatever it may be. So that's very much on purpose. They have this core set of 150 people so that it actually seems like it's a ship where you see the same people over and over again. Also, from a practical standpoint, this works really well because then they're not having to constantly refit costumes to bring in new extras. They're not having to constantly train these extras on etiquette or how to act in these scenes. And even if they don't have lines, they have a lot to do because they're in these period costumes, especially the first class. They're expected to be walking a certain way, gesturing a certain way, eating a certain way that would have been proper of this very elite first class in Edwardian society in 1912. And in order to accomplish training the extras in this way, Cameron actually brings an etiquette coach on set. Her name is Lynn Hockney, and she does what she calls a, quote, basic training course for extras that's three hours long where she's teaching them all of this. And then she also produces a sort of mini documentary of how to on all of this at, you know, table etiquette, that sort of thing. And it's running in the costume area all day on a loop as the extras are getting ready every day. That's insane. Oh, one more. Uh, the Speaking of the core extras, one of the core extras is a man named Brian Walsh, and he was actually the piper from the band Gaelic Storm, and they are the band that plays in third class in the steerage uh, dancing sequence, and he was actually handpicked to do this, to be a core extra. Gaelic Storm was a Santa Monica pub band that Cameron found and discovered. Brian Walsh really conceptualized himself as playing Eugene Daly, which if you're a Titanic person, you might be familiar with his story. He was known to have been playing Aaron's Lament on the bagpipes on the aft well deck of the ship as it left Queenstown, as all of the Irish on board left their homeland, many of them obviously for the last time. So he's a uh, very, you know, key uh, Titanic passenger that people love to study. In the meantime, Digital Domain has taken over an airport hangar in Playa Vista, an old Hughes, and that is uh, Howard Hughes, air aircraft facility. And that is where the fleet of models that are going to be used in these digital shots, the ones that combine digital and practical effects, these models start to take shape. 
and they take up an entire airplane hangar and they begin to f- to manufacture furniture uh, in Mexico City and more than a thousand articles of clothing are already warehoused in Los Angeles. So slowly but surely, this is all coming together. And at Digital Domain, you have things like James Cameron, you know, on the floor himself working to age a piano. So, you know, you forget they have to shoot these underwater scenes as well, because the the wreck footage that James Cameron gets on the Keldishan 95 for the time is fantastic. And there's several shots, you know, like the crab walking that are, you know, you could never replicate those on a studio. But there aren't enough clear shots from the wreckage to create an entire, you know, set and scene where the Brock Lovett character is, you know, moving his sub around, moving his ROV around. And so they have to build this underwater set as well. You know, Cameron is hands-on at Digital Domain doing things like aging parts of the scene himself because he's been down to the wreck and he has this visual memory as well of what everything felt like. So he's doing a lot of that himself. They actually hung one of the models from the ceiling in order to shoot some of these scenes, which is cool. And um, also, and you can see this in some of the behind the scenes footage, they had to build all of the hallways and uh, all the bits of the wreck that are exposed, the decks and things. They had to build miniatures of those. And it's just incredible. And again, they had to age it in a very specific way, a very specific way that something looks like after it's been underwater for this many years. It's pretty incredible. You know, they would burn things, shellac things, you know, take sledgehammers to things probably looks like some sort of, you know, maniacal version of reno day when you knock down a wall at a house and and you start the renovation process. Cameron goes down to Baja to Rosarito in May and he parks the 25-foot model of Titanic on the coast of Mexico and just observes. He spends that whole day looking at how the light catches it, looking at how the wind looks and sounds and feels around it. I just love that moment of practicality. This is before directors wanted to or knew that they could shoot pretty much anything they want to on green screen or create anything that they wanted to on a computer. He knew that he had to figure out what this light was going to look like, what the wind was going to look like, what it might look like for smoke to come out of smokestacks on this horizon, this very specific bit of land and ocean. And so I love you know thinking about that moment heading into production. So they start working on the studios in Rosarito. But they go, but Cameron and his crew go to Halifax, Nova Scotia first, and they film the present day scenes. And they actually bring the crew of the Keldish and the Keldish, those present day scenes where Brock Lovett is on the research ship and Rose comes and stays with him on the research ship with her granddaughter. That is the Keldish. So if you've listened to my Ghosts of the Abyss episode, my James Cameron episode, here we are at the moment where you know, if you've seen Titanic, you actually have seen the Keldish, a lot of the crew. He actually gave the Russian crew, a few of them, sort of bit parts, background parts. And Anatoly Sagalovich, the pilot of the sub that James Cameron goes down to the wreck in in real life. He is actually the pilot, Anatoly, in the movie, in the sub that Bill Paxton is in. And there's this great photo from the Halifax Hotel. <laughs> James Cameron is sitting on the edge of a hotel pool. He's, you know, talking to a woman that is probably some sort of costume assistant. 
And they're trying to accomplish so much about the planning of the 1912 scenes while they're also shooting the present day scenes that they have a random woman wearing Rose's sinking dress. It's not Kate Winslet. And she's testing it out in the hotel pool. So you see this woman wearing that, you know, diaphanous sinking dress heading into a hotel pool. It's probably like a Marriott or a Hampton Inn or something. And in the distance, you can see just some teenagers that are staying at the hotel, just swimming in their goggles. And Cameron is sitting on the edge of this pool, kind of monitoring and, and trying to figure out like what the dress is going to look like underwater. So that that photo to me was a really great representation of sort of the convergence of all of these moments as they plan and start to shoot this movie. So a couple of things that <laughs> a couple of things that I'm going to kind of skate over a little bit uh, and not give a ton of attention to because they've been worn into the ground. Uh, one is that the original cinematographer that they bring in on Titanic that James Cameron brings in is Caleb Deschanel. He is Zoe's dad, by the way, and he lights and shoots the 1996 scenes, the present day scenes. And he and Cameron have just a kind of a disagreement about what the lighting should look like for this film. I think the narrative goes that Cameron wanted the 1912 scenes to be really bright. And Deschanel was more wanting them to be kind of, you know, sepia, antique kind of old, you know, romantic tones. And it sounds like they just had a very basic but crucial difference of opinion about what the film should look like. So Caleb Deschanel does not go on to work as cinematographer for the main shooting parts for the 1912 part of Titanic. And I just, I don't know, I've, maybe I'm just fatigued by how much reading I've done about, you know, Jim Cameron and the making of this movie at this point. Fatigued in the sense that I love reading about it, but the same stories get rehashed over and over. I don't see a lot of merit in rehashing that story. So he is replaced after they leave Halifax. The other thing that gets rehashed and whole chapters sometimes get devoted to is the fact that Fox at this point in mid-1996 is already quite worried about the budget for this movie. And so they bring on a partner. They bring on Paramount Pictures to partner with them to make the movie. And notoriously, Paramount gets capped at $65 million as an expenditure. Basically, They sign a contract saying, we will pay for half of this movie, but the half of the movie that we're going to pay for, you know, is a movie that costs, you know, $130 million to make. And so if it ends up costing more than that, we're not paying anymore. Our half is $65 million. So people love to rehash the story about how Paramount got the, you know, best deal in the world, essentially, because it goes way over that in budget. (laughs) just uninteresting to me to tell the story of how a group of people made a lot of money and then this other group of people made a ton but slightly less. But we will talk about money and Cameron in terms of the production here shortly because there are some things that are important. So Cameron also mentions that at this point there is someone else that works on the script with him but he doesn't name who it is. He says that only a couple of lines stayed in and one of them is the Freud line when Rose asks Bruce Ismay if you heard of, you know, Sigmund Freud. So I don't know. I don't know who it was. 
anybody have any speculation? Because Cameron is credited as sole screenwriter. Okay, Halifax, classic Cameron uh, tale. One night, a woman from catering was making the rounds on set and was serving soup. Apparently, she serves soup that is too hot to James Cameron. So he throws it overboard over the side of the Keldish and grabs the bowl of soup in Caleb Deschanel's hand as well and throws that overboard without even asking. So it's no wonder really something like what I'm about to describe happens. And this is the notorious PCP incident of the Halifax part of the shooting. And to note, a lot of people who talk about the making of Titanic mistakenly say that this happened on the last day of filming in Mexico, but it did not. It happened on the last day of filming in Halifax, which is in like mid-1996. So Louis Abernathy, good old Louis, remembers arriving to set late one of these last nights of shooting, and Cameron was bent over with stomach pains. So apparently Louis had been eating at the hotel, and he said he was watching his weight because he was filming his first on-screen role. And so he shows up to set, and anyone who had eaten... The catering that night uh, was out of their minds sick. So he went to the cafeteria and he finds 85 people sick. He knew that bad seafood could make you hallucinate and fill this ill. So that's what he thought it was at first because there had been clam chowder. So Cameron makes himself throw up. He's very, you know, you know what you've heard about James Cameron is true. It's very practical, problem solving in the moment. He's excellent at it. He's thinking, okay, something has happened. I've been poisoned in some way. I'm going to throw up. So he does. But Lewis describes him after this as looking actually like the Terminator, his own character, because he had one like red engorged eye. And apparently they all head to the hospital and Cameron says to Lewis, finish the movie, Lewis, you know what to do. <laughs> and there's nothing more out of character uh, for James Cameron than telling someone else to do his own movie. So 56 people were taken to a local small emergency room. This is in Canada. They had no nausea. So the doctors quickly realized that it wasn't food poisoning. Um, Abernathy <laughs> embraced the mood, realized what was going on, that they'd been you know, drugged. And for anybody that was back on set, he lowers the lights and puts on Roy Orbison. Bill Paxton escapes the hospital and comes back to a party on set and a conga line. And Honestly, <laughs> and I, I was reading um, in the book, I believe it was in Paula Parisi's book, and she's the journalist that was on set. And she's the one that does, uh, so wrote the book, The Making, Titanic and the Making of James Cameron, which was a huge source for this episode. She basically points out that in terms of a crisis related to food on a set, it actually wasn't that bad. Catering on sets is notoriously terrible. And there have been some pretty notorious incidents of food poisoning on sets that have made people very ill. So when all is said and done, I don't think it was viewed as something too crazy <laughs> to deal with. Paxton, a Paxton asked how he could, quote, get the soup written into all of his contracts. And apparently he was having a great time. So if you didn't have like a huge dose of this, I think he were just running around, you know, hallucinating and high and, and maybe having fun. But there's also a great story that comes out that Cameron was at the hospital waiting to be seen and so out of it. And he looks over and sees one of his production assistants on the walkie-talkie trying to talk to him. So she was so out of it on the PCP that she didn't realize she was in a hospital. She didn't realize she was just a few feet from her boss. She was trying to get on this walkie-talkie. So he tries to tell her that and intervene, and she proceeds to try to stab him in the eye with a pencil. 
apparently had a good sense of humor about this and continued to hire this woman uh, on future projects. So he didn't hold a grudge, but that's it's pretty nuts if you think about it. So they also shoot a lot more of the present day scenes than you see in the movie. There is an entire subplot that goes on between Brock, or I guess the hints of a subplot between Brock Lovett's character, Bill Paxton, and uh, Rose's granddaughter, Lizzie, played by Susie Amos, who would become, uh, in years to come, James Cameron's wife. They had sort of a subtle love story love storyline going on. There's the insinuation that maybe they're going to get together, which is kind of, you know, funny to think. Uh, I mean, Brock Lovett's very much a stand-in for James Cameron. I mean, James Cameron even admits this. He says that, you know, that scene where Brock Lovett is on the deck of the Keldish talking to the money guys, he's like, that's that was my life. That's what I did. So it's kind of ironic that, you know, Brock Lovett's character and, and uh, and the Lizzie character were supposed to maybe, you know, end up together. So they shoot a lot of that kind of scene. They also shoot this entire alternate ending where Bill Paxton confronts old Rose with the diamond. He realizes she has it. It's it's terrible. I mean, you've probably heard this. You've probably watched the deleted scenes. It's terrible. James Cameron edits himself pretty well. I think he knew to get, obviously he knew to get rid of it. It doesn't work. But it is entertaining. Um, <laughs> if you haven't ever watched all the deleted scenes on on the the Blu-ray and such, you you definitely should. They're also all searchable on YouTube. Let's be honest. So you can just search Titanic deleted scenes and see all of them. So meanwhile, in Rosarito, <laughs> and uh, if you haven't ever looked at Rosarito on a map, it's you know right on the coast, just south of the border about it's two and a half hours drive south from Los Angeles. So meanwhile, in Rosarito, Fox Baja begins to take shape. In three short months, a fully functional four-stage motion picture studio with the world's largest open-air tank and a filtration system capable of handling 17 million gallons of salt water. Normally, the planning and engineering phase of something like this, which is essentially equivalent to a sports arena, would be three months in itself. But in that timeline, they get the construction going. This was coming together on 24 acres of land, which housed only some old concrete marker, I read, it was called, of a failed previous development, a development that even locals couldn't remember what it was. It took 10,000 tons of dynamite to blast away the 17 million gallon hole to fill where the ship would be built. By July of 1996, the area was swarming with a construction crew of 1,500 and another 400 working on props and set working under Peter Lamont. Welders, plumbers, heavy equipment, drivers all working like mad, essentially building this small town. They were erecting a village. (laughs) Cameron stood, essentially, if you think about it, Cameron found a spot, found Rosarito, stood in a field, I mean, a beach, but a field, metaphorically, and said, make me a movie studio. And they did. They built him a studio. The Fox quickly realized that with more attention to electricity and a little bit more planning, that this could all become permanent. So instead of just viewing it as only being used for making Titanic, they then realize they are building the first major studio built since since the 1930s, and this would become Fox Baja. So Cameron arrives on set in Rosarito on September 9th, 1996. He was done filming in Halifax, and he rents a little house on the beach seven miles south of where the set is. 
Now, all of at this point, all of the parts that he's been orchestrating, the costumes, the teams of of crews to make props, to build sets, all comes together in Mexico at this point. And he is, to keep with that metaphor, an orchestra leader that's got to take all of these parts and make it this beautiful whole. And so he sets out to start that in September of 1997. So he has a no compromises philosophy about the sets and the props. And that's been evident to all the people that are working with him from the get-go, even from late 1995. The interiors of the sets, the, the interior sets, are based largely on photos from the Olympic and plans from the Olympic. And that had been Titanic's sister ship because they didn't have a lot of photos of Titanic. You know, nobody knew she would be gone after her maiden voyage. Everybody thought there would be plenty of time to take photos of the inside of the ship. So there actually aren't a whole lot of them to go off of. During the dive to the wreck, Cameron had photographed the starboard side suite B-51, but he used the port sides matching millionaire suite B-52 for Rose and Cal's suite. The art department's first go at it, he wasn't happy. So again, he then physically gets in on these sets, picks up a paintbrush and redoes things himself. There is the 500 seat dining saloon. So 500 dining chairs that had to be produced, for example, and all of the tables. There are sets that are being shipped in from thousands of miles away. Peter Lamont has had, you know, workshops going on building these items all over the world. So they're being shipped in. There are stained glass windows that get damaged in transit. It's a lot of delicate stuff that's being mailed. Basically, they are building the Titanic. There are 900 drawings rendered of ashtrays to the ship itself. So some of these are drawn by Cameron. Some of these are drawn, obviously, by his team. There is literally a drawing of everything from the smallest ashtray with White Star Line written on it all the way up to this big ship that they're building. And keep in mind, there's the inside sets. There's the interior part of the studio. You know, what you imagine when you go on set of a studio, if you if you walked onto, say, the Paramount lot, what you would expect to see, right? Just rooms and rooms made up to look like different things. But then there are also the water tanks, and that's a whole nother part of the set. And then there is also the biggest water tank, the 17 million gallon water tank that's right, right on the coast. And that is where they are building Titanic. So as they're shooting in a few minutes, we'll talk about it. But as they're shooting interior sequences, parts of Titanic, the dining saloon, for example, if you're a cast or a crew member, you're also simultaneously watching them build Titanic outside your window. It's just incredible to think about. So in the dining saloon, there are 450 table services with white star patterns and logos. On the decks, there are 200 deck chairs that are built. There are 100 ceiling sconces that have to be made meticulously. The carpet patterns from the original manufacturer of Titanic Carpet, which is BMK Stoddard, still had the designs, and they actually manufactured them for Cameron. Uh, Lightstorm Entertainment secured the original engineering plans of Titanic from Harland and Wolf, which is a big deal because because Harland and Wolf and, and Belfast in general, up until the early 2000s and after this movie, really didn't really didn't like to interact with or comment on 
you know, the sinking and what had happened with Titanic publicly very much. They put in a giant pulley system to raise and lower the 1.3 million pound grand staircase and dining room set, an environment that would be three stories high that James Cameron was going to put people in and flood. (laughs) And next week, we're going to talk a lot about the the filming of those flooding sequences. Even the ceilings were detailed on every room, which is something you know most directors wouldn't have bothered to do because you don't see it in the shot. The grand staircase uh, had carved wall paneling that was real oak. They actually had to extend the staircase by 18 inches on some sides because people are bigger now. Uh, just people were a lot smaller then. So they, when they originally conceptualized remaking the grand staircase, they realized that there weren't, (laughs) there wasn't going to be enough space for uh, people to walk up side by side and that it might look a little crammed on film. So they had to extend it. So if you can kind of imagine it, and if you've seen the movie, obviously you you probably really can, but the Grand Staircase landing was on D-deck with an opening out to a first class reception area. This was all constructed over a 5 million gallon tank of seawater that was capable of being lowered, you know, actually a pretty fast rate, one foot every second. The oak carving at the top was recreated under the supervision of master sculptor Dave Coldham. Uh, Another interesting point here is that when the Olympic was scrapped in 1935, her carvings, her basically her first class reception area actually found new life as the interiors for the White Swan Hotel in a place called Alnwick in the UK. Hope I'm pronouncing that right. And the owners let the filmmakers come and measure and photograph uh, all of this as to be as accurate as they could. The chandeliers were crystal. The props department became a factory that could produce furniture, ornamental items, molds. The set had 8,000 lights, many of which had to be underwater, so had to be specially designed. And set dresser Michael Ford created exact replicas of all of this. You know, like I mentioned, dining chairs, teacups, suitcases, ashtrays, lamps, mailbags. Think about all of the detail. And he had to commission thousands of China, crystal, and have it imprinted with the White Star Line logo. There's actually some debate about whether lamps were even on the tables in first class. We know they were designed for Titanic, but there actually is no proof that they made it onto the tables. The lifeboat Davits provided by the, were provided by the same company that provided them for Titanic, the Welland Davit Company. And if you imagine all of this, this is a really great analogy to speak to it. Peter Lamont, the production designer, he essentially becomes a Thomas Andrews, right? Bicycling around this huge set, checking in on a million little things. He's also an orchestra leader of sorts. And there is obsession over things as small as Rose's Art Deco mirror. A dozen different mirrors were considered and researched at one point. They build the gym on Titanic and recreate the entire gym for essentially one scene. There are other scenes cut uh, out of the movie they film in the gym. So this whole room on Titanic is basically created so that Jack can pull Rose in from the boat deck and talk to her in that crucial scene of the film. The third class cabins are recreated, the cabin that Jack stays in. I have been to the Titanic Museum attraction in Pigeon Forge, and they have an exact replica of a third class cabin, and it looks exactly like the movie. I mean, it's identical. So I think Cameron did an excellent job with that, particularly. There's the third class general room. We actually see it 
a lot more. Uh, again, there are a lot of uh, deleted scenes where it's featured prominently and some of those get cut. So we essentially just see the third class general room in that steerage uh, dance party scene, but there were more that were shot. So you can also think about all of the areas that he didn't recreate, kitchens, pantries, crew quarters, the a la carte restaurant, the Turkish baths, I think it's very judicious, you know, which areas James Cameron, you know, chose to recreate and which ones he didn't. But I'm sure, I'm sure he would have loved to be able to, you know, make it all to essentially make the entire interior of Titanic. But, it, you know, like I mentioned earlier, it all had to be new. It all had to be that fresh paint. <laughs> he used real wallpaper. Like I talked about the lighting, there's so many lights, all the lights were done to perfection. And it all had to be exactly as Rose describes it in that moment, right? Of, of stepping onto the ship. Nobody had slept in the beds. Nobody had used this china. It was all fresh and waiting. And particularly the luxuries waiting these first class passengers. So Leo said <laughs> of, you know, being on the set, quote, I have trouble tuning out all the lights and cameras. And he means that, you know, typically as an actor. But if ever there was a moment where I've been taken back in time, it was on this film. This was the peak of the Gilded Age. This was opulence. Remember, Mark Twain coined that term, the Gilded Age, to critique what he saw, to critique the excess of this era. And Cameron had to recreate it. And then all the way th down to things like the prop doll for the character of Cora, the little girl that Jack befriends, that doll is modeled after the one that Robert Ballard saw on the ocean floor when he first went down to the wreck, all the way down to little details like that. And Cameron does a really amazing job of recreating these sets and featuring the ones that he does so that he creates a geography of the ship that you are familiar with. You travel with Jack and Rose through every part of the ship from the coal room, engine room, the cargo hold, all the way up to the boat deck. And so when the ship starts to sink and when some of these scenes that he films get going of, you know, flooding of this mass suffering, you really, not only like we talked about with the extras, the core extras, you recognize people, right? So you feel invested, but you also recognize all the parts of the ship. You understand how beautiful this ship is, and you understand the geography of of what you're looking at as, as each scene hits. And I think that's a really genius move as a director, and I can't think of a film that does that better. So... Anyway, and obviously there are, <laughs> I could mention, you know, I, I'm not even exaggerating. There's a hundred other tidbits I could mention about the props and the sets. Um, I could do an entire episode about the costuming. I won't. I don't know. I think maybe I would start losing listeners at that point if I gave you like a two hour <laughs> podcast about just the costumes on Titanic. But I will say they, um, even the detail on that, they had a head beater uh, who was in charge just of the beads on some of the dresses. The, they had this philosophy in the costume department of there's a soul in every dress. So they would find these old dresses from the Edwardian era and they would resurrect parts of them, you know, the beads, the lace, and they would make new ones. And even the hangers that they hang clothes on in the first class cabins are, you know, RMS Titanic hangers. They have kind of an interesting job with the costuming because the Edwardian era was very transitional. You know, the Victorian curved hourglass silhouette on women was kind of giving way to a new style, cleaner lines, straighter lines, kind of more girlish. So these are 
the, the dresses that Rose wears, and her mother represents more some of the old older Victorian styles. And the corset, and obviously there's that, you know, iconic scene of, of Ruth putting uh, Rose into her corset. A corset would have been kind of in the first whispers of its way out at this point. Uh, some women were starting to not wear corsets. And it was a very like ethereal feel to clothing and to hairstyles and jewelry that was coming in at this point. And I will do an episode sometime this year on Lucille Lady Def Gordon, who is the fashion designer that was on board. And I would love to talk about her. We will for sure. There's a lot to unpack about her. What's interesting is the costume, like Deborah Scott, the head costumer, and she would go on to win an Oscar for her work here. She said what was so moving was that you see all these photos um, of people in this era and they're in black and white. So then when you see the gowns in person and you open up these boxes and they're purple, they're striking, they're purple, they're pink. It's kind of a moving moment to realize, you know, all the way back to Cameron insisting that the lighting was bright and modern on this movie. For these people, these clothes were modern. These were new. These were exciting clothes. And the menswear was really complex at this point. Buttons on the back, tie pins, collar buttons, cufflinks, watch chains, gloves, hats. Billy Zane has called his character Cal a, quote, fashion Clydesdale. (laughs) And I will say, I'm about to really admit something about myself. So when I was 13 and, you know, 14, maybe even until I was 15 or 16, I obviously was like a Titaniac and a Leomania person. And I totally used to to write Titanic fan fiction. I remember on the early days of the internet being, you know, 13 years old on my dinosaur of a computer that you had to boot up and made all of the loud noises. And I was on AOL, I'm sure. And I would Google. Oh, it wasn't even Googling then. I would search. I don't even remember. Did I use Yahoo? Maybe. But I would use one of the search engines, maybe like Lycos. <laughs> and I would search for, you know, what did men wear in 1912? Because I was trying to write these, they were god awful, uh, fan fiction stories. And I needed to describe what the clothing looked like. And I remember being frustrated because I could never figure it out. And now, you know, you could just Google any of that and find, you know, a thousand pictures or, or drawings of what you need. But anyway, there you go. There's a tidbit about me that I've let loose into the world. If you know me personally, that probably comes as, you know, no shock. So the big ship's not ready yet uh, in Rosarito, Mexico, but principal photography begins on September 18th, 1996 with the interior sets. Things like Rose and Cow's Suite, which is the setting for the Draw Me Like One of Your French Girls, famously, and also the breakfast where Cow, you know, throws the table over. And the walls of other sets were literally going up around the actors as they did this. So this set, if you can imagine, this is great setup for next week's episode. The set is being built around, you know, the paint is still fresh. There's this joke on set, don't wear, you know, nice clothes to work because they're going to end up with paint on them. So you've got the ship being constructed outside. You've got the sets going up around them as they shoot. And some of the most iconic scenes, like I said, draw me like one of your French girls, uh, the breakfast scene, those are shot very early. And we're going to talk about more of the ins and outs of some of those scenes next week. But I did just want to mention that. So principal photography begins. This is a, 
<laughs> Here's a great uh, quote from Rolling Stone. Uh, this came out after the movie was released, and it's just such a peek into how magazine articles were written in the 90s. But it says, quote, when Leo arrived in Rosarito, he had already spent four months in Mexico shooting William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, a racy reprise that hit number one on the variety list and drew on his audacious acting, as well as those romantic looks, the slacker torso, Keatsian visage, and the drooping blonde forelock, which have made him catnip to budding teenage girls. So Leo steps on set. <laughs> I was one of those teenage girls. Just gosh, can you imagine that that writing? Oh my God. So Leo steps on set. And we'll talk about this more next week, but Kate Winslet you know, has famously said, I had to be naked in front of Leonardo DiCaprio on his first day of filming on Titanic. So this is the scene. So they're 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 starting to make this movie. It's going to be six to seven more months on set. And next week, I am going to walk you through what the actual shooting was like, uh, the flooding scenes, how those were created. Um, there'll be some good, uh, fun Kate and Leo moments. I have spent the past couple of weeks really reading and listening to interviews. They're my favorite source. I feel like I, especially when they're videos or they're audio, because I feel like I can really get a sense of what people feel about other people, about scenarios, about what they've been through. And so that's been a big source. And next week, that's really going to shine through. I have for lack of a better word, cross-referenced interviews from so many people who were on that set. And I think I have a pretty good sense of what uh, if it, what the the closest thing we can get to the true story of, of some of these uh, set tales and how that went down. So next week, we're going to talk about the shooting of the film and also a little bit about the aftermath of its release. And, and uh, probably no doubt will be some uh, personal commentary from me just about the film and my relationship to, you know, researching this and the nostalgia I had of researching this because when I was 13 and 14, you know, 97, 98, I thought it was so cool that I owned the companion book to the movie. I thought it was so cool to see the behind the sets photos. And it's just, and I would recommend, you know, Googling those. They're really kind of amazing to see. So, all right. <laughs> I'm going to take a breather from 1996 uh, for a little bit. I originally conceived this as one episode and if I did that, it would be a three-hour episode, and I don't know. I have, I have a lot of faithful listeners, and you guys are amazing listeners, but I think that's that's a little much. That's that's a little much. So to break this up, I thankfully had given myself kind of a week break in this you know ninety-seven series schedule. So uh, the second part of this episode will post in that little week. <laughs> I'd given myself thankfully as buffer. So next Monday we'll be back with part two of this, and then after that I'm going to look at the feminism of Rose's character in an entire episode devoted to a feminist reading of Titanic and. For that episode, I am going through a lot of very dense critical essays about feminism on film, you know, feminism and James Cameron. Um, there's a lot of Kate Winslet content in that episode, so it'll be really exciting. And then the last episode in this series will be just about the cultural resonance of the movie, and that's in mid-February. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I've had a lot of new listeners which is why I released, uh, re-released a couple of episodes this past week. There's a lot of new listeners all around the world. Welcome. I would like to thank to my newest Patreon members. 
I cannot, I mean, still, every time I get the alert, you know, on my phone or on my computer that a new Patreon has signed up, I do like a silly little shout and dance in my house and my husband always laughs, but it's so exciting to me. It means so much. So I want to thank Derek Anderson and I also want to thank Carson Meadows. Thank you for becoming Unsinkable VIPs. And I did mention it on my socials the other day, but I am in the process of coming up with a plan to do quarterly meetups on Zoom. So if you are in that you know, $5 a month VIP category tier, I think is what they call it, then you'll be eligible for these. Uh, I don't know exactly when we'll start, probably sometime in March. Um, I've got a, a big vacation in early March with my family and we'll be back like... I don't know, March, we're gone a while, March 23rd, I think. So it's probably going to be that last week in March for the first one is what I'm conceptualizing. But if you are in that VIP tier, you'll be eligible for all of that. So I'm excited to to get some folks together. If you are able to support the pod that way, it is patreon.com backslash unsinkable pod. Uh, please contact me on Insta, Twitter. I'm unsinkable pod. Check my uh, show notes for my bookshop link. I've got a couple of lists going uh, of my sources and some books I recommend, uh, particularly on James Cameron and the making of the film. And I've got a lot more book lists to come about uh, 1912 Titanic, obviously way more to come. So check that out. Um, I think that's it. Have a fantastic week. Can't wait to bring you the second half of this episode. If you're liking the pod, please rate and review on Apple. I hate to ask that so much, but I think those reviews and ratings really help the visibility of the pod. And guys, <laughs> download numbers are getting insane. I, um, <laughs> I the reach of this pod is astounding and I don't take it for granted and I thank all of you especially those of you that have been here you know since day one uh, this is incredible it's an incredible journey I'm so excited so all that to say if you do have a quick second and you're liking the pod rate and review on apple it helps a lot all right I am gonna go drink a bunch of water <laughs> I think I'm about to lose my voice all right see you next week <laughs>